Today on BibleStudyPodcast.org, we're going to be taking your questions and hopefully giving you some good answers. So stick around. The September Questions and Answers session is coming up next. Hello and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. I'm your host for today, Toby Logsdon. Today is Wednesday, September the 12th. And, of course, every second Wednesday of every month we do a question and answer uh, podcast in which I take your questions and try to give you guys an answer, you know, from a a Christian worldview. And I think this is going to be kind of an interesting podcast because... I really didn't get a lot of questions from uh, from any Christians. I got a couple, uh, but I got a ton of emails from atheists and skeptics and so on. So uh, actually, I'm going to be responding to one of those in today's podcast. And next Wednesday, I'm going to be responding to a letter from an atheist point by point. And hopefully that'll give you guys uh, um, some good examples for how to defend your faith and why, you know, the secular humanist, scientifically positivist worldview doesn't work and why their arguments are flawed. And we're going to be going through that next Wednesday. But today I'll be taking some questions from you guys. I just want to remind you real quick that if you want to support Bible Study Podcasts, if the Lord has called you to support BibleStudyPodcasts.org, then you can go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org and scroll down, and on the the right-hand side, you'll see a link to support us. And, of course, we're trying to offset our our server costs. We are now getting over uh, 2,800 downloads a day. And our our server is definitely coming in handy. I'm glad that we upgraded when we did, because otherwise it would have crashed with the old one with that many downloads. So if the Lord has led you to support us, if you like what we're doing and you want to help us out, you do have that option available to you. But without any further ado, let's go ahead and start with our questions. Our first question today comes from Tony, and Tony writes, Hi, I am a Christian and have enjoyed listening to your podcast the last couple of months. I live in Malaysia. And wow, that's that's really cool. That's neat to know that somebody in Malaysia is listening to me. Thank you, Tony. Um, I have a question to ask you. Question, what is life like in heaven with regards to our earthly relationships with one another? For example, I am told that there is no husband and wife relationship in heaven, but at the same time, I hear during burial services that we, husband and wife, shall see one another again, but as what? And are we to spend eternity without any close relationship with one another? Tony, that's a a very good question. Thank you for sending that in, and thank you for letting me know that somebody in Malaysia is listening to us. That's that's really a blessing for me. To answer your question, uh, you are correct. There is no husband and wife relationship, and that's because we are the bride of Christ. We are going to be, you know, married to God. Our commitment is only going to be to God. Of course, this is what we find when we read Matthew twenty-two thirty, which says, "In the resurrection, they, meaning we believers, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven." So I'd have to say, there's no marriage in heaven because there's no longer any need for marriage once we are in God's presence. 
But that doesn't mean that heaven is going to be any less fulfilling. Matthew 6.20 says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupts it, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So, of course, we should be storing up our treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Now, I know it's hard to imagine being separated from somebody you love. Uh, you know, I'm I'm married. I love my wife dearly. I love my family dearly. And it's it's kind of strange to try and imagine not serving as a husband to my wife and not serving as a father to my children. And honestly, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about what our relationships in heaven will be like with each other, but we do know that we're going to see our loved ones who are in heaven when we get there. Of course, Second Samuel twelve twenty three uh, is where David says, "But now he, his son, which was an illegitimate son, but now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return." to me. So, of course, David is referring to the fact that because his son died, his son would have been in heaven waiting for him when David gets there. And, of course, when we read, you know, the book of Revelation, we can also find some descriptions of heaven in there. We find uh, in Revelation 21, starting in verse 1 through through the end, uh, and, and going through to chapter 22 through verse 5, we find a description of the new heaven and the new earth. And that might give you a little bit of an indication of of what we will be like in heaven or what it's going to be like in heaven. We also read in First Thessalonians chapter four uh, that you know Paul is encouraging people to comfort one another with these words. What are these words? The words are the promise of being reunited together with those who are dead in Christ those who are believers who have died, they will be reunited with Christ. And then we will be reunited with Christ at the rapture. And so we will all be in the presence of Jesus and of God together at the rapture. And that's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And that should be a comfort to us. We know that those who pass on before us, if they are a believer in Christ, we will see them again. And for that reason, I do believe that we will have close relationships with one another because we'll be in one another's presence and in God's presence forever. I think we're going to have relationships like none of us have ever experienced before on our in our earthly lives because all that there's going to be in heaven is beauty and happiness. There's no sorrow, there's no mourning, there's no crying, there's no pain. That's what we find in Revelation chapter 21. Heaven is going to be a beautiful place, and we are going to experience it with all of the saints. And of course, when I refer to saints, I'm talking about believers. Everybody who's ever believed in Jesus is going to be there. We're all going to be there together in each other's presence and in God's presence. I hope that answers your question, Tony. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and for writing. It's really just such a blessing to hear from you. God bless you, Tony. Thank you. Our next question comes from Tom, who is a brother in Christ who lives in England. 
which is, you know, just such a blessing to know that, you know, people in England are listening to us as well. It's such a blessing. Thank you, Tom, for writing. But Tom writes that he went out with some friends and, quote, really came under some attack for my beliefs in Jesus Christ. It made me realize how much need there is for Christians to stand up and defend their faith. Religion has really been corrupted by man, and my friends were arguing this point on how religion has caused so many wars, etc., unfortunately. That's true. Tom continues writing, I explained that being a Christian and a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ was not so much a religion, but a relationship with Christ. That's true. It's a relationship with Christ. Religion is man's effort to reach God. Christianity is a relationship with Christ. Anyway, Tom continues, I said that God loves everyone equally, and so we should too. But if God loves everyone equally, then why are we all not born into equal situations? In my heart, I know the answer, but I couldn't explain it in a rational manner. I guess I'm asking, does God favor some over others, and does everyone get to know Jesus in the same way? First of all, thank you so much, brother, for writing. I appreciate hearing from you, as always, and I really uh, appreciate your question. This is a good question for us to ask. Does God favor some over others? A lot of people would say uh, yes, because they believe that they are born into a favorable condition You know, compared to somebody who's in a quote-unquote lower uh, civilization or whatever you want to call it. However, uh, I'm going to answer that by saying, no, God doesn't favor anyone over anyone else. God calls absolutely everybody to follow him, to, to believe in him, and to pursue him with all of their mind and all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength not just some. So God doesn't favor anyone over uh, over other people. If he did, we couldn't really say that he was a just God, but I believe that God is the ultimate standard of justice, and as such, he can't show favor to anyone. And that's kind of something that we've been touching on in our, in our Roman study. So I would say that no, there, there's no favor, but does everyone get to know Jesus in the same way? That's the second part of your question. To that, I would say Yes and no. Jesus is the only means of salvation. However, the gospel is able to be taught throughout you know, various cultures. It's taught cross-culturally. And of course, we find that in the book of Acts, when all of, the, all of the Jews from various nations are brought together in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and the apostles are given the ability to speak in tongues. And so the apostles come out and start speaking to these men in their native languages, and so they're obviously communicating the gospel in these languages. So the gospel can be communicated no matter what the language is or what the culture is. But there's another aspect of this that we have to look at too. You you asked, if God loves everyone equally, then why are we not all born into equal situations? And I would say, you know, we don't even know what the ideal situation to be born into is. If, um, if you're born in a poor country where your only hope is is God and counting on God, you know, you're drawn very close to God. But on the other hand, if you live in Western civilization, such as, you know, England or uh, the United States, you know, we have a lot of conveniences and we have a lot of churches. There's a lot of church history in our countries. And so, you know, like in, in the United States, here, here in North Carolina, for example, I, I tell you, there is a church on every single corner. So there's a little bit of maybe um, a head start or, you know, the, the, the tendency, more of a tendency for people to go to church here in the South. But 
I'll say this much, that doesn't produce genuine Christianity. Because you go into church and everybody's dressed up nice on Sunday, but who are they for the rest of the week? Well, they're not counting on God for the ne- for the rest of the week necessarily. But, you know, I've been to poorer countries and they have more of a tendency to rely on God because God is their only hope. And, you know, I can't tell you one way or another which is better to live in, you know, some place like the United States or Western Europe or to live in an impoverished country where Jesus is your hope to get you through every single day. I'm not sure that uh, that we have an advantage over them. They might have the advantage over us. But nonetheless, God is available and seeks to justify everyone who seeks him, no matter which culture they're in and no matter which language they speak. So I hope that answers your question, Tom. If it doesn't, you know, of course, shoot me an email and I'll be glad to to try to get into some more detail about that with you. But God bless you, brother. Thank you for writing. Our next question comes from Conrad, who wrote to me on MySpace and said, I love my church and its members to death. However, recently I've been crushed by my youth pastor. He told me that defending a literal genesis is never-ending and therefore pointless. My youth pastor's argument was that all that matters is love, because love conquers all. However, an atheist can love. The only difference is they believe that they love due to billions of random processes by chance. So, if love conquers all, couldn't their love conquer Christian love temporarily? This battle of proving a literal genesis that God's word is truth and being able to defend our faith where science has will continue to fall short. It is important to me because if we can get a non-believer to see that the theory the Bible presents is not just blind faith, but that it makes sense, this would give a Christian some very solid ground to show them why it's important to obey the rest of God's word and to take everything the Word of God says literally. Well, first of all, Conrad, of course, thank you so much for your question. That's a very good question. That's something that I haven't touched on in any of the prior podcasts yet. And let me start this off by saying I completely agree with you. If we try to love somebody, that's great. But if they won't recognize the authority of Scripture, what good is it going to do them? Because everybody is capable of loving. Everybody has the ability to love And yes, we should be set apart and people should know us by our love. But at the same time, I don't think we can fold on the inerrancy of Scripture. So if we're talking about trying to convert people to being Christians, you know, do we want them to think that Jesus lied? Because Jesus affirmed so many things as being historically true from the book of Genesis. When we're talking about, you know, defending the Old Testament... A lot of people are convinced that in the New Testament, they kind of overrode, overrode the Old Testament and that love was, uh, was the new thing. That was, that was all that mattered was love. And I would disagree with that because the New Testament writers affirmed so many things that are affirmed in the Old Testament. I mean, it, it's, it's just a crazy list. And let me just give you a few things. For example, first of all, in the New Testament, we find an affirmation of how the universe was created. And uh, that we find in Genesis 1, we find that in John chapter 1, verse 3, and we find that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We also find that the New Testament affirms the creation, the special creation of Adam and Eve from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We also find an affirmation of the marriage of Adam and Eve 
in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. We find an affirmation of the temptation of Eve in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. We find affirmation of Adam's disobedience in Romans 5.12 and in 1 Corinthians 5.22. We find affirmation of the sacrifices that Cain and Abel made, uh, which we find in Genesis chapter 4. We find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. We find affirmation that Cain murdered Abel, you know, like we find in Genesis 4. We find that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. We find affirmation of Lot and Sodom, which we find in Genesis uh, chapters 18 and 19. We find this affirmed in Luke chapter 17, verse 29. We also find affirmation of the burning bush, from Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, we find affirmation of this in Luke chapter 20, verse 37. You know, there are so many things that, that tie together between the Old Testament and New Testament. You know, if we start giving up the Old Testament, if we start, you know, folding on the, the Old Testament, we're also going to have to fold on the New Testament. And if we fold on it all, you know, what's the point of even having a Bible? You know, what's the point in referring to it as an authority in our lives? You know, I think your youth pastor is way off, but that's a good question, and I agree with you 100%. We can't concede that the Old Testament is not historically reliable. But very good question. Thank you for, for sending that in. Our final letter today comes from an atheist uh, named Stephen, and he writes uh, in regards to the podcast that I did last week on science in the Bible. He said, just listened to the new one on science in the Bible. First, it's easy to find bad science in the Bible. Here's 309 of them. And he goes on to give me a link to uh, to this website, which outlines a bunch of bad science in the Bible, supposedly. And he says, there's plenty more. Were you unaware of all of these before you dismissed the critics out of hand? Well, here's here's what I'm going to say to that. Here's the deal, Stephen. I'm going to challenge you to pick out any one of those 309 examples, and that is totally up to you, whichever one you choose. And if I can't give you an explanation for why this website is misinterpreting or taking out of context, or if I can't give you an explanation to explain that verse, then I will publicly apologize for that podcast and for doing that podcast. But if I can explain it logically and effectively. Here's what you have to do. You have to go to church two weeks. And what I will ask is that you'll tell me where you live. I'll find a church in your area and you'll have to go to church for two weeks. So one way or another, one of us is going to have to eat a little bit of humble pie. But uh, hopefully you're up for that because if you really believe that those 309 examples are valid, you know, as Pat Benatar is saying, you know, hit me with your best shot. Give me any one example of where there's bad science in the Bible, and if I can't explain it, I will apologize. In fact, I will just take down that Science in the Bible podcast, and I'll publicly apologize for giving it. But then he goes on to write, If there is all this science in the Bible, why does it never come out until real scientists discover it? Well, Stephen, you know, to be honest, I think you're the only person who missed me saying that the Bible is not a science textbook. Let's go ahead and see what I said last week. Let me preface this lesson by saying that the Bible is not a science textbook. It was never meant to teach science. It was never meant to teach scientific theory. However, it does make scientifically true statements. Let me preface this lesson by saying that the Bible is not a science textbook. 
And then in a, a later email, he sends me something very interesting. He says, Most strong atheists will claim that they are as certain as anything else that one particular understanding of God is wrong. Now, who else out there catches the fact that this is a self-defeating statement because an atheist has an understanding of God, and that is that he doesn't exist. So if they're as certain as anything else that one particular understanding of God is wrong, then they have to believe that their position is just as wrong as the position that God does exist, which makes it a self-defeating worldview. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to say there, Stephen, but it doesn't work, it doesn't add up, and it's just philosophically flawed. You're affirming what you're denying. But anyway, the challenge stands, you know what the challenge is, and if you're up for it, you know, I'm up for it too. But Stephen, I do appreciate you listening, and I do appreciate you writing, and I am going to be personally praying for you that you will continue to seek the truth. But that's all the time that we have for today's question and answers. I hope you guys were blessed by this, and I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, next week I will be responding to another atheist. He made several points trying to disprove God based on our uh, podcasts on Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And I'm going to be responding point by point, and hopefully you guys will be blessed by that, and you'll be able to learn something from that. And so it should be good for all of us. But thank you so much for listening today. I'm going to ask that all of you keep our friend Stephen in prayer, and, uh, and of course that you would pray for me as well, as I do my best to defend God's truth. But thank you guys for listening. God bless you, and keep growing closer to Jesus.